All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we've been in the book of Genesis and uh, sharing specifically the gospel through some of these popular stories. Uh, we only have two more weeks in this series, and we're going to finish it on the life uh, of Joseph. In fact, today we're going to be talking about the fall and rise of Joseph. Um, and I couldn't but help uh, preparing for this, uh, noticing and seeing on this uh, certain uh, website uh, how recently a celebrity taught this same story to high school students. Some of you guys may know of him, heard of him. Here's a picture of him. Uh, but he, teaching high school students, uh, Donnie Osmond, wore his multicolor coat when doing it, okay? And so I know I'm, I'm saving you, the, you're saving your eyes from me coming in my own multicolor uh, coat um, that I have in my closet. Uh, but I, I was thinking, if, if Donnie Osmond teaches uh, high school students, listen, some of you guys should be teaching high school students, okay? If Donnie Osmond is doing that, some of you guys need to be doing that. And if you're interested, talk to Connor Woods, who's in the back right there, okay? Um, but no, I, I saved you from that. Uh, but we are going to be talking about the, the infamous multicolor coat. Um, and we're going to learn some lessons in his fall, not by his own doing, but in his fall, lessons of jealousy, temptation, and integrity. So starting out, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, God's word says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked them and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I do believe I would have acted, at least up to this point, very similar as Joseph's brothers when reading this. That I would have been a little jealous, maybe even more than a little, upset that the brother who I felt like 
my dad loved the most is now having these dreams that we're all going to. I mean, they don't know that this is setting himself up to be or a prophecy of where he's going to be in position. It seems like this is a dream of them worshiping him. The, the brother that you're already envious, jealous of because of the family dynamics and him being the youngest who the father loved that's getting the nice Donny Osmond multicolor coats for. And all of a sudden he's having dreams that we're all going to worship him. Now again, I don't know about you, but I know in my flesh, in my sin, in my selfishness, I would have been jealous as well. But as we're going to read and continue to see, there is sin and jealousy and envy. Because listen, church, our jealousy is different than God's jealousy, as it's described in the scriptures over a hundred times. It says over a hundred times that our God is a jealous God for these different reasons. And we know that our God has a perfect, righteous jealousy over our time, our energy, our love and worship for other things in place of him, the one true holy God. But when we see, even though I feel like I would do the same thing, at least up to this point, but when we see the type of jealousy here as a root of Joseph's brothers, and it's found in our very own hearts and lives, we use it as a sense of being envious of someone who has something that we do not have. And that kind of jealousy is a sin. It is not a characteristic of a Christian. Rather, it shows that we are still being controlled by our own desires as revealed in 1 Corinthians 3.3, which says, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? See, being jealous indicates that we are not satisfied with what God has given us. We are not content. We cannot accept his will. The Bible tells us to be content with what we have. For God will not fail us or forsake us. And so when we do have sinful jealousy, envying, wanting what others have, whether that be certain position, certain skills, certain things in relationships, family, friendships, even as Christians and as the church, jealousy sneaks in. You'd be amazed and fearful and scared of how prevalent it is. Even in like Christian church circles, when it comes to comparison of numbers, of styles. Oh, you have this demographic? Oh, I wish I could have that. The source of envy. You see, where in this story, this type of sinful jealousy leads Joseph's brothers to. In fact, in verse 12, Jacob, who is renamed Israel, sends Joseph to check on his brothers who are shepherding from afar. And those jealous brothers, as it says in verse 11, saw him coming up to them, far away from their dad, far away from people and responsibility and authority to be able to catch them and what about they're about to do as they start conspiring to kill him. Look at, in fact, verse 
19. It says, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, when Reuben, one of the brothers, heard of this, he talked to the other brothers. He, and he talked them out of killing him. Instead of just trying to end his life, he says, well, let's just throw him into the pit and wait. They agreed. And as he snuck off to try to warn their father, because he realized what they were doing was wrong, the brothers noticed a caravan of what it says, Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt and actually led by brother Judah, who we learned a little bit about last week. We're going to learn more about today. Judah talked them into selling him off as a slave. And Reuben returned, noticing that Joseph was gone. And they tried to cover it up by tearing his multicolored robe and goat blood, telling their father that he was slaughtered by a wild animal. And his father mourned his son's death. To the point that I don't want anybody speaking to me. Ashes and sackcloth. I feel like I'm going to mourn this the rest of my life. And as that unfolds with the family back at home, meanwhile, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And then we see, we're going to skip the next chapter. We're going to come back to it in a moment. And then we see Joseph, who's now in Egypt, originally sold as a slave, but then starts working his way up in this position. And now you see in chapter 39, starting off with verse 1, what happens with Joseph. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard in Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord, this is important, look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had and house and filled. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, it's encouraging here to see Joseph's witness in the presence of Egyptian royalty. And it's interesting to see the powers of Egypt to put Joseph in higher positions all while not wanting to worship his God. Where they want the power from that God, but not exactly that God himself. More about that later next Sunday. But just take notice of this, okay? Now, going to this story, and what is real popular about this story, we see Joseph in this position... And as it says in the very next verse, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The Hebrew word for form means six-pack abs. And the Hebrew word for appearance means face of Tom Holland. Okay? So 
Joseph had six-pack abs in form and had the face of Tom Holland. Verse 7. And because of these things, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. He had such integrity that he's like, I'm not even going to lie beside her. This reminds me of Jim Helpert resisting the temptations of Kathy on their Florida business trip, okay? Just lying next, no, I know what's going on here. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought us among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to me, spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, we're going to talk about the integrity of Joseph, especially in comparison to the chapter we just skipped with Judah. But before we do talk about his integrity, I do want to bring one thing up about this story, because it's the first time we've actually taught it on a Sunday morning, and because I have heard it quite often as of lately, in the last few years, and so I want to address it real quick. You see, as we know and see right here, Joseph was falsely, as we know in our current culture today, he was falsely me tooed and let me just put it out there. My own personal opinion, while we're on this story, I personally wonder and question why this story is brought up as much as it is and mentioned as an example of potential false accusations that are out there when it comes to sexual sin or assault. Because I've heard this story as an example for that more often than any other reason these last couple years. And since that is out there, I want to say a few words about that. Yes, we will have false accusations in this day and age. And yes, 
those false accusations or made-up stories will be sinful and wrong. They do happen, and they will happen as we live in a fallen, sinful world. However, as this has been brought up often in that case in this day and age, in my opinion, like we see so often in Scripture, there are far more examples of actual sexual sin, assault, and hypocrisy rather than those false accusations. Bring up the one example in Scripture of a false accusation, but deny or ignore the hundreds of stories and verses in Scripture revealing and warning us of how prevalent sexual sins are in the world and ingrained in so many hearts. Along with the much more prevalent Scripture, I'm going to be honest here, I've encountered those sins in far greater number in shepherd and counsel rather than the two or three times a false accusation has been made. So I will say this, if you keep up with this stuff and you hear this story, oh, this is why we can't believe those type of things, please believe me. Not only in my counsel and shepherd, there's far more sexual sin, salt, and those type of things but even in the scriptures, it reveals it. So be careful to make a point with this in that way. And as we may want to think, we may want to think twice before we potentially justify some of those sins with this one story. Although, like I said, false, false accusations, it will happen, and it is important for all details to come out. But rather, this story should be used by God more in revealing the importance of resisting temptation and acting with integrity. In fact, look how Joseph, it says here, refused the temptation. And he mentioned two things that helped him refuse it. Look what he says to Potiphar's wife in verses 8 and 9. It says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When he refused that temptation, do you see what the two things that he mentions that I believe not only helps him, but helps us in times of temptation and to act and live with integrity? It's these two things. It's our responsibility toward others and it's our accountability with God. As he mentions the responsibility he has and the position he has, what God has graciously brought him and listen, you have a responsibility toward others and covenants that are made. And we suffer consequences with kids, with those roles and that influence that can be lost, even if it's temporarily. I've mentioned this before, but I believe at that time, and I know it was a season, but I believe that God has protected so many people 
when they think about what they can lose in those moments of times of temptation. Whether it be family, whether it be, again, influence, whether it be witness, God will use a healthy, good fear when you are reminded of where he has placed you, what he is doing, what can be lost. Even if everything's not great at home, in your job, with your influence. I've said this, but I felt like in my own life where Satan attacked me the most when it comes to temptation, especially when it comes to sexual sin, it was early on in Bible college. And I'd mentioned during that first year or two where honestly I came out a year of running far away from the Lord, repented, and then went off to Bible college and that first year or two where I felt like temptation was the most and I probably wasn't even the strongest of a believer, especially coming out of a year from running away from the Lord, I believe with all my heart that by God's grace, I was able to resist temptation because I, at that time, was so afraid of what I felt like I could lose in the future. Of what I could lose in the future. Not even being married at that time, not being a pastor at that time, but I had a fear from the Lord of what type of stupid, sinful decisions could I make right now that will help me lose what God can give in the future. And by God's grace, what can be lost right now still produces a good, healthy fear of the Lord. Because it's not only that. Look at the second thing that he says. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We have accountability with God still. God's not going to turn a blind eye toward our sins. And then you can't but help to. I know we skipped it, but going back to it real quick. Look at the differences between how Joseph acted in this time and his brother Judah, in which we skipped in chapter 38. Again, I'm not going to read the entire chapter for sake of time, but if you go back one chapter, right in between where he was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers to this time where he acts with integrity off the temp from the temptation of Potiphar's wife, you see right in between in chapter 38, Judah, the brother who was named after his mom's Praise to the, to the Lord, knowing her worth is found in God alone. The same brother who led the charge to sell Joseph into slavery, making some horrendous decisions in chapter 38, especially in contrast to Joseph, in which Joseph was put into a place of temptation. We see in chapter 38, Judah constantly looking for it. And we know it can happen in both of our lives, but it just shows Judah's depravity as he sought it, confusing his own daughter-in-law with a prostitute. And day after day, when Joseph withheld the temptations from Pharaoh's wife, as she repeats through, throughout chapter 39, lie with me, you see a radical difference when Judah is looking for it. As he thought, as he was walking roadside and who he thought was a prostitute approaches her and asking her to sleep with him. And instead of saying yes, she says, what will you give me? And this is his daughter-in-law. And 
full veil, so not again knowing who she is. And Joseph, meanwhile, in the next chapter, resisting daily seductions, brother Judah is looking for it and paying for it. You have Joseph, who's literally fleeing from Potiphar's wife as she is ripping off his clothes, later to falsely use against him. We have here Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, who takes the items given to her for sleeping with him to show after it is revealed that she is pregnant with his child. And Judah saying, we need to kill her because she had an affair. And that's what he says. He says, we need to burn her. And guess what? The items that come up that she's given is his items. And later finding out it was him that impregnated her. And even saying, look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them, talking about the items that he had given to her, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. In fact, when we see that here, and Judah discovers that he's the one responsible for Tamar's pregnancy, he acknowledges her righteousness in contrast to his own failure. And by God's grace, he does use this event to mark an important turning point for Judah and decisions that he starts making in the future. But as we all know and have even felt ourselves at times, there are some hard consequences that could have been prevented if he lived with the integrity that his brother Joseph showed. And listen, church, listen, it's still the top thing I look for in leadership. And I believe as the church, one of the top things we should strive for as Christians. Character matters. It does. It should matter in the church. It should matter in politics. It should matter in your workplace and in interaction with others. Who we are when no one else is looking matters to God. It does. And listen, church, I also know that we're not going to be perfect. I know we're going to be dependent on God's grace. And he gives great grace. He does. And it doesn't mean when I say that one should be canceled in life. But character truly matters in our witness and in certain expectations. You know, I'm going to just lay it out here. And this is the online recording, so it's going to be stuck forever. So I will be canceled by them as soon as it comes out. But even as a Browns fan, you know, I received texts all week about the news of our recent quarterback acquisition. And as I shared with several of those people, even if it was proven that our new quarterback did not sexually assault 22 women, there is no denying by any parties that even if it wasn't sexual assault, that there was a ton of sexual sin that happened between a pro football player and women that he was paying to give him massages. That even if consensual, that's not the type of character I want leading my team. You take what is horrible and horrendous out of sexual assault and you just put that in, 
That's not what I look for in a leader, and I'm not going to be happy about it. Even, and you know my love for Cleveland sports, you guys, right? You know that if you've been here for a while. I don't need them to be a Tebow. I don't have to have them being a Christian or perfect, but I'm not going to sacrifice character and leadership for winning, even with my beloved Browns. And that's to be, listen, church, even more expected and true for the body of Christ. As we see with Joseph here, and in comparison to Judah at this time, and we know we've had a fair share of scandals and sins. I mean, if you pay attention to the news at all, you see them large scale going on with Hillsong, where the stain and the witness of the global church, they lost nine of its 16 American church campuses in the last three weeks alone. And we know it happens locally. Even if it doesn't hit the mainstream news, where it rocks the testimony of the surrounding community. I'll never forget where it happened as I was a student pastor at a church in the area that I was serving in. And within one semester at that church, we had like 20 to 25 students that visited from that church because of the scandal that had hit and all these people rushing to go to other churches. And where we should be reminded that one can be restored with God. Receive fellowship with the church once again going through that process of repentance and restoration, we also need to be careful when rushing people to leadership because where all sins are truly level at the foot of the cross, we know there are still earthly consequences. And character matters. It's why, did you notice, when you look at the characteristics of elders, the highest level of authority in the church, according to Scripture, what do you think matters most and is described when it comes to the qualifications role of elder? Character. It's why it should matter in all areas of leadership, but especially with positions of power or authority. And how dangerous it is to have those in influence without such integrity. Because again, Joseph had power. He had authority. That wasn't the sinful thing. It was who he was when no one was looking. And in the fall, that wasn't even by his own hands. Now we see in chapter 40 and 41, the rise of Joseph. Look at verse 21 of chapter 39, first starting this. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He was sent to prison from um, the, the Potiphar. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge and all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. In the midst of his persecution for his integrity, God was good and gracious, and his providence 
of putting him in a place where he was still going to put him in a place of influence. First, we see in chapter 40, where Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's imprisoned chief cupbearer and the chief baker, in which he reveals that the cupbearer will be restored to his previous position and that Pharaoh would kill the chief baker. Later, this comes true in Genesis 41. Pharaoh has a weird dream then about thin cows gobbling up fat cows. And he was disturbed by this dream. And the chief cupbearer told him about the man of God that he met in prison who correctly interpreted his dream. And so Pharaoh got Joseph out of jail, asked him to interpret his own dream about these cows. And Joseph tells him that this dream means a great famine will be coming for seven years after seven years of abundance. And that he will need to put someone wise and discerning in charge to steward the food during this time to save their people. And Pharaoh, believing Joseph and seeing how this is a sign from God, Joseph having the spirit of God, he says, he puts him in that position, giving him that power, that protection, and that royalty to be that steward of that upcoming famine. And the interesting thing with all this is that Joseph, it says here, gives all glory to God when being used by God and then stewarding such power and position. In fact, look at verses 15, 16 of chapter 41. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and then no one, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it right away when that happened. Joseph answered Pharaoh saying this, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I'm not the one doing this. He's giving glory to God. And after Pharaoh shared that dream, Joseph makes sure he knows this interpretation is from God and not him. It says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Later, when Joseph then has two sons, look what he says. Now he's in the highest power and authority in that position. And look how he's still giving glory to the Lord. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Not only did he continue to give God all the glory, but he was used by God in that position to save many. And as we'll learn more about next week, to protect the family that betrayed him and to protect God's people. In fact, look at verses 55 to 57. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to, God, to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. God used him. And ultimately, I do bring this up to remind us that character, that integrity matters in leadership. 
because you need that when you have such influence, such position. Yet we also do see how God is sovereign, even in the indecency found with Judah and his family. Because this is where the gospel comes in here, both with our need for him in mistakes and pointing to him in witness and influence. And let me just quickly remind you as we conclude here, this right here should cause us to be overwhelmed and grateful for Jesus. This should, oh, this should be used by the Lord to have us love him even more. It should stir our desires for him and to want to share him when we see these things. Because first we see that the gospel does come from the mess of Judah. Over and over again in Genesis, God surprises us by choosing the one we don't exactly expect, proving that he is the one who determines who is esteemed in his sight. You especially see this with Judah and his sons after comparing the choices that Judah and his two sons make in chapter 38 to Joseph's rise in integrity. In fact, let me remind you once again where Jesus came from. Matthew 1, 1 through 3 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Yes, that's who he thought was the prostitute. That was really his daughter-in-law. Came the lineage of Jesus. You know, this should remind us, a hopeful reminder, that no matter how messy our life seemed to be, how dysfunctional our family seems to be, Jesus can use it. Integrity matters, but is ultimately given in God's grace when we are given righteousness from Christ for our unrighteousness. And as we seek to be holy for God is holy and desire it more, discipline for it more out of the great grace that he gives to us in Christ, we know and we're reminded before getting too self-righteous, we are from a dysfunctional family, not the one with character. And by that great grace, it was costly on the cross and powerful in the resurrection. But of course, don't let this undermine Joseph's testimony to the gospel and all this as well. Because not only is the gospel come from the mess of Judah, but it is shown from the life and character of Joseph. In fact, it's pretty amazing seeing the parallels of Joseph's fall and rise with the gospel. One day, Joseph, who lived in his comfortable home with his father, enjoyed the privileges of being the chosen heir Next, he's targeted, he's attacked, and he is humiliated. He ends up a common slave in a foreign country, betrayed by his own people, later falsely accused. And what a picture that that paints to us of the humiliation of God's beloved son. Jesus 
who, unlike Joseph, was not an unwilling victim, but instead willingly offered himself up to be treated in that similar way. In fact, let me remind you what Philippians 2 says about Jesus. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And listen, church, Joseph's emergence from the pit of death and eventual ascension to the right hand of Pharaoh, that also paints a picture of the resurrection and glorification of God's beloved son, Jesus. As he rose from that pit and became the right-hand man of Pharaoh, we know in the resurrection, as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, God has highly exalted Jesus, him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, in the, on, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because like Joseph kept on giving glory to God at that time, that's what Jesus does with us. It's all my Father. It's him who has sent me. It's him. And that's what we should do. Let's pray.